Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Well, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. And we do want to remember the Atkins family, as you know, Russell, who uh, will often teach our class. His father passed away this past week, and, and the funeral was yesterday. So we want to remember them in our prayers. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We pray that your spirit will be here with us and your angels will join us as we adore and worship you today. We pray that you will enlighten our minds to see you more clearly and grow in our relationship with you. And we ask that you will send your spirit to comfort the Atkins family as they are moving forward in in this world without Jake with them. And we pray that uh, our hearts will be turned towards you as we look forward to the day that we will be restored with our loved ones again. In your holy name, amen. And we are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly, Loved and Loving, John's Epistles. And the title of the lesson this week is Believing in the Son of God. And as I read the title, you know, Believing in the Son of God, I, it just struck me. Would, would you have felt or, or preferred or thought of it differently if the title would have read Believing in God the Son? Or is it synonymous to you, Believing in the Son of God? Synonymous because Adam was the son of God. So we could be believing in Adam, maybe? I'm just, you know. Oh, son is capitalized. Okay, alrighty. I, I don't know. I just, I just threw it out there just because sometimes the way we express things can have different meaning. And God the son is more of a declarative to me than the, the son of God. Because the question, even when it's capitalized, there are people, and we're going to talk about this next, um, that believe the Son of God, Jesus, was the first created being by the Father. There are, there are groups that believe this, yes? Yes. I don't think it's synonymous because um, the Muslims accuse Christians of worshiping more than one God. So if this is the Son of God, that's another God to them. But God the Son... God the Son sounds like the same God. Ah. Okay. Well, let, let's explore this. Uh, in, in the, somebody read the first two paragraphs for us there in the Sabbath lesson. Ideas about who Jesus is have varied not only in antiquity, but also today. Some separate the biblical Jesus from the so-called historical Jesus and claim that the two may not have had much in common. The historical Jesus was, supposedly, a common man with a strong sensitivity to the divine, that's all. And he certainly was not the Son of God raised from the dead. Others believe that Jesus was a mere political revolutionary who, in a subtle way, tried to overthrow the Roman Empire. We may be tempted to consider these topics as mere academic and philosophical exercises, but who Jesus is and what he claimed about himself impact every human being. The way we think about Jesus influences dramatically how we relate to God, how we understand the plan of salvation, and how we can have assurance of salvation. So so the first thing we want to talk about today is what are your thoughts about Jesus? Who is he? Fully God? Lesser God? Not God at all? I mean, these are all all options out there in the in the world's thought, isn't it? In the history of our own church, there were people who believed that Jesus was the first created being, what we might call Arians. Did you all know that? 
Have you ever heard of Uriah Smith? He, he was Arian. He didn't believe that Jesus was fully divine as the Father, that he was the first, in the sense that Jesus was the offspring of the Father, so he was divine, but he came after the Father. Much like your child is your offspring, so he's part of your race, the human race, but he wasn't there before you were there. This is how a lot of people have thought about Jesus historically, that Jesus was the offspring of the Father, so he's of the same substance of the Father, but wasn't there in the beginning with the Father. With that in mind, did Jesus derive his life from his Father, or does Jesus have his own life, original, unborrowed, and underived? Do we have any Bible texts that would help us with this? John 1.1. 1, 1. You want to quote it or read it for us? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. So he was there. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, there's a good one. Right in the very beginning of everything, we have the Word who's God. That's a good one. Yeah, I'd like that. Other texts. I like that one. No one can take my life from me. I can lay it down and I can take it up again. So he's talking about life in his own power. That he Can we do that? Can we lay it down on our life and take it up again? No. no, we could lay it down, but we can't take it up. Yeah, it's a big difference. I like that one too. Here Jesus making this claim, that the phrase I am, before Abraham was I am, that the, the great I am. Yes? Uh, Isaiah 96 had someone from another uh, persuasion challenge me on this because uh, I'll read it first. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this uh, other person, this person said, see, it doesn't say Almighty God, it says just Mighty God, so he's just another God. But it says Everlasting Father. What do you do with that one? Yeah, I, I think the person who was uh, who was critiquing that verse was uh, was really trying to make an issue where one doesn't exist. Don't you all think? Yes. Yeah, just trying to. Uh, yeah. Well, here's one out of Micah five two. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. And who's gonna, who's that? Who's the one that's talking about here? One who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from the days of eternity. Or Colossians 1, which says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Now get this next phrase. He is before all things. Before. What's that mean, he's before all things? He was here before, yeah. I mean, this goes back to the pre-existent Christ, doesn't it? Christ, a, a God with no origins of his own. Question now, if we go back in time, what form did Jesus take before his incarnation? Several people around the room, an angel. What biblical evidence do we have for that? We want to support this with scripture, don't we? Because I think we all believe it's true, but what evidence do we have? 
Michael the Archangel. That's what we often conclude and put forward as Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son of God. Let's talk about whether we can make that connection of Michael being that person. Because there is another denomination out there, group of people, who claim Michael is Jesus in the pre-incarnate form. And they claim that he was the first created angelic being. And he wasn't fully God. And because of that, when we put forth the idea that Michael was um, Jesus in his pre-incarnate form, other Christian groups misunderstand and think we are saying that Jesus was created or, he, or he's not fully God. We've already established our belief that Jesus is fully God, divine, with all the uh, powers and, and uh, attributes uh, to, to God. He's pre-existent, has his own life. So, so we're not diminishing him in any way. We're now asking the question, what form did he take? And if you ever wanted to be able to make this case for somebody, you might want to just jot these texts down because it'll be able to just make a very strong biblical case of Jesus' pre-incarnate form. Exodus chapter 3, God is talking to Moses at the bush. Starting in verse 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within the bush. Now who's within the bush? The angel of the Lord. Moses saw it. it saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Now, who's in the bush? Yet it's the angel of the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? And then, of course, the voice said, take off your sandals, because where you're standing is, why was it holy? Because God was in the bush. So here's the first reference in Scripture that angel of the Lord is a synonym for God. And you can look at that same exact story as in the New Testament, for those who prefer the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is giving his speech, he actually gives the exact same words there, and you can find it both New and Old Testament. Genesis 22:11-18, God comes to talk to Abraham. Here's what it says. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, this is out Mount Moriah. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me, from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket saw a ram caught in his thorn, in its horn, by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain the Lord will provide. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. Who's talking here? Is this pretty clear? This is God. But it's the angel of the Lord. Can you see the scriptures using the angel of the Lord also as the name for God? Or do you see two different people talking here? Or is it the same? It's the same. In the book of Judges 2 verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you in the land that I swore to give you to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Who is the covenant with? Who's the one that brought them out of Egypt? Yes, this is God. 
You see? So the angel of the Lord. We got this all through. Through the book of Judges, you find it repeatedly through there. Here's the story of Manoah and his wife who asked for a son. 13 verse 17. It says, Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that we may honor you when your word comes true. He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding in, in the NIV. Any other versions in here? It is secret in some versions. Any other versions? Incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. Any others? Full of mystery. Full of mystery. Anybody have footnotes? No, and I looked this up in the Hebrew. It also means, for my name is wonderful. Wait, we just heard in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born. His name shall be called Wonderful. Isn't that interesting? Do you think that the angel of the Lord here is the same as the angel of the Lord we've been reading about, which is God, whose name is incomprehensible. It's wonderful. Yes? Is there any way to dispute the concept that it might be God speaking through an angel? Um, can you actually make the idea that it is God speaking through an angel here? Since, since it's talking first person, since it's talking the angel of the Lord, since it's talking I am the one who, who did this, I am the one who made this covenant, do you think angels take credit to themselves for things that God does? So it would be God speaking through the angel. Not that the angel is saying God's words, specifically, but that it is God's voice coming out of the angel. You mean that it would be more be like a robotic thing? Like a puppet? <coughs> what do you all think about that? Verse 19 says that he realized the man of God he was talking to was the Lord. Ah, so here it says again, the man he was talking to was the Lord. Well, then in verse 22, it says, And then Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. Yeah, we have seen God. And what happened was they, they made a little sacrifice there, and the angel of the Lord disappeared on the fire up to heaven. And he said, We will die because we have seen God. Yes. We use the word angel, and the translation uses that word angel, and it's not really the same. It just means messenger. Can mean. But, I mean, if you look back through, there's not a word angel in, in the Hebrew. And so, or the Aramaic. And so if, if you're reading angel, it's just the, the, the essence of the messenger at that time. And so in whatever form it comes, sometimes that messenger is an angel, sometimes it is God himself who is the messenger better to say sometimes that messenger is a created being, sometimes that messenger right. is God himself. Right. So in the cases we've been reading so far, what do you think? God. Created being or God? God the angel of the Lord went through the camp of Egypt and smote the firstborn. Who was it? Oh man, we have to probably be quiet there. Okay, well, let's, let's see. I, I, I'm not disputing the idea of the angel's messenger, but let's see if we can build more text that actually will then shed further light and say, okay, maybe we need to go beyond just messenger to what form he took. Now, pardon? Who smoked? Revelation 12, 7 and 8. I want you to have something to study this week. I, I, my personal belief on the who smote the firstborn, the one who put them to sleep is the one who can wake them up. That's what I think happened there. Revelation 12, 7 and 8. is war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. 
Jude 9. But even the archangel. Now, archangel, is that more than just angel now? Is it more than just messenger? Is this like super messenger? Or is archangel now something more than that? Even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not bring slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, what's the archangel Michael doing here? What's he there to do? Resurrection. Who does the Bible say holds the keys to death and the grave? Jesus. At the last day in Thessalonians, the, the, the trumpet shall sound, and the voice of... The angel will be heard. And what happens when the voice of the archangel is heard? The dead in Christ rise. Hmm. Do you think it's a stretch to talk about the archangel who, Michael, who rose, raised Moses from the dead? Well, is the archangel whose voice sounds and calls the dead to life again in Thessalonians? Is that a stretch? Or is that reasonable? And who is it that holds the keys to death in the grave? Whose voice do we believe is going to call the dead to life again? Jesus. Do you think this is a stretch or do you think this is reasonable connections? Well then, Daniel 12, 1 and 2. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress as never been seen, and multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake to everlasting life. Here we again have Michael calling the dead to life again. Now, interestingly enough, anybody know what the name Michael means. Who is like God? Who is like God? You see, in Old Testament times, names had meaning. So imagine Michael, who is like God? You're an angel in heaven, Gabriel, and, and you're talking to one of your angel friends, and you, and you want to find Jesus, what would you say? Where is who is like God? Have you seen who is like God? Oh, there's who is like God. There's the one who is like God. I have to go back to First um, Thessalonians because you didn't read the entire text. It, it says First uh, Thessalonians four sixteen, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and Christ. So this is all as if it's the very same thing. So only further right. affirming this idea. Yeah. What text is it that says that? Philippians 2? He took the form of a servant, humbling himself to the cross? Yes, over here somewhere. Yes, Yes, uh, Zechariah chapter 12, uh, verse 8, likens God to the angel. Yes, Zechariah actually has a couple of really nice places there. You know, it's really good to use your concordance if you're uh, questioning something. Just look up. A, a, a word in your concordance and look at and follow all of the references underneath. And uh, also on Zechariah 12, verse 10, um, there's a prophecy, then they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And so... It, read, that, read that actually aloud. <clears throat> and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for the firstborn. Yeah, Zechariah is an interesting book. In Zechariah chapter 3, um, if you remember the, the uh, story there, it says the high priest stood there, and Satan was accusing the high priest, and it says the angel of the Lord stood by to defend him. So there we have it again. And the angel of the Lord said, remove his filthy clothes and put on him rich clothes. 
What is it talking about? What do the clothes represent? All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We want to have the robe of Christ righteous. We want to be dressed in white linen or pure clothes. This is another reference to Christ who is defending us against not the Father, but against the attacks of the devil to cleanse us and heal us and restore us. So we find through Scripture, and, the, and we're coming to a, a, a head here, we're, we're putting all these texts together, are we making a case that Christ's pre-incarnate form, we're not quite done with the case yet. Uh, we've got, we were just making the point about um, Michael, meaning who is like God. And that would be so cool to think that through, how that's how they're talking about him and an angel saying, who is like God? I mean, think about the name that he took, the one who is like God. Why was that important to have that name, the one who is like God? Somebody read 2 Peter 1.19 for us. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the morning star arises in your hearts. Who's the morning star in this text? And you may have some different versions, but until the morning star arises in your hearts. The word translated bright morning star is phosphorus. Translated into English, we get bright morning star or day star. Bright light. Translated into Latin, in the Latin Bible, the word is Lucifer. And it's referring to Christ. Does that kind of... Throw your mind a little bit? Well, it shouldn't, because what does Lucifer mean? Light bearer, or bright light. Who is the light which lightens all men? Christ is the scripture. He's the light which lightens all men. And so here we have another reference to Christ very closely aligned now with the first of the created beings, the first of the created beings, a being called a created being, not a divine being, called Lucifer, who was a light bearer. Does this give us any insights at all as to maybe what was going on in the heavenly kingdom that led to war? Anybody's mind's spinning here? On the Ark of the Covenant, what do we see? Two covering cherubs. Could their names have been Lucifer and Lucifer? Michael and Lucifer. Yes. Well, the way I... Some people would think about it is maybe that Christ was so much like the other angelic beings in his relationships with them that it was easy for them to misjudge. Nicely said. Let's give some foundation for that. Did Christ, we all believe that Jesus Christ, incarnate, was fully human, but he was also fully God, yes? yes? Did he do such a good job of being a human that most of the humans failed to recognize he was God? Yes. Well, if he took the form of an angel, could he be such a good angel that some angels might not realize that he's fully God? Is that a possibility? Yes. I think that says something really incredible about the character of God, though, because a created being would have no way of relating to God unless God made himself into the form of that created being. There would be no capacity for exchange, no relationship. And I think God did that same thing with the angels that he's done with us because we couldn't relate to him really, fully, until he became human. Are you all hearing that? Because this is a huge point she's making. It's showing Christ what, what Christ's true mediation is all about. God is infinite. 
It doesn't matter how high a created being is, including Lucifer or Gabriel or the angelic host, is there still a large gap between the infinite God and the highest created being? Yes. Yes. God wants the closest possible intimate relationship with his creatures that he can get. We cannot get but to so high in our development. And it's still a big gap. But Christ, God, can come down to our level and talk with us and relate to us. And so what she's saying here is that Christ throughout all history has been the member of the Godhead who has been stooping down to represent God to the creatures he has created. He did it in heaven before his incarnation, and he did it on earth after our fall. Yes, Karen. I think it also says that it shows his character that he was willing to take the risk that he would be confused as, and that it was not just the mediator um, capacity, but it showed his humility in taking that risk. And it's not just a risk. He, if he truly has foreknowledge, he knew it would happen. I think it says that God says, you know what, I am, you're not. I don't hold that value. What I want is relation. I don't care what I am and I don't care what you are. That's important for you to know. It's not important for me to be with you. This is hugely important because it goes right to the heart of God's character. Philippians chapter 2, somebody mentioned it. Somebody grab that and read that for us. Philippians chapter 2. Right there in the beginning, first, first couple of verses, I think it starts verse 1 or verse 2, about your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. And read this, get this, who did not think equality with God was something to be grasped. Somebody read that whole little section for us. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Do you see God's character being revealed here in one who was equal with God, but did not think that was worth grasping for self? In other words, if you contrast that with Satan in in, in Isaiah 14, I will exalt myself, I will promote myself, I will uh, advance to the highest heights. He is trying to promote self upwards. It's saying here, equal to God, did not think that was something to be grasped or self-promoted or self-attained. Instead, he relinquishes those things. He humbles himself. He steps downward for what purpose? What does Hebrews say that Christ went through the cross for? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What joy? To see to reveal God. To see us restored to the original. Parents, if you had a child who was, who was in, in, in life-threatening danger and you could intervene in such a way to save them, but it would risk or even sacrifice yourself to do it? Would there be joy in your heart? Would there be joy to know you're saving your child? It was the joy that he humbled himself for, for joy for us because he loved us so much. And so we see this nature and character of God that he's always stooping down to reach his creatures for his creatures' sake, not for his sake. Yes. We're saying that when Jesus, when God became so much human that it was hard to tell it was God. Did any angels ever get him confused for an angel? That's a, I think that's the point we're talking about here. Lucifer, the created being who became Satan, one day looks over at Michael, the divine son of God, 
pre-incarnate, pre-existent, fully God, who has been presenting himself in the most humble and loving way, equal with one of his own creatures. He's not equal, you understand. They're different. And Lucifer begins to suggest that God is arbitrary because God takes Michael into councils that Lucifer is not permitted to go into. This goes to the whole understanding of why was it that Jesus was the member of the Godhead who created. We just read the text that Jesus created. All things were created by him. Was the Father or Spirit incapable of doing that? No. No. Why Jesus? He was the messenger. Who did Lucifer claim equality with? Whose place did Lucifer want to take in heaven? Oh. Jesus' place. It was Christ he wanted to usurp. It was Christ he hated. He never claimed more power than the Father. You'll never find a place where where Lucifer claimed he had more power than God. What you find is that he claims that God is unfair in the use of his power. Now, how could he make that case in heaven that God is unfair in the use of his power? What could he say to support that claim? He's partial to Michael. He's partial to Michael. And there's no difference between Michael and Lucifer. Lucifer and Michael are both created beings. We are in the same status. We're in the same stature. We have the same abilities. And he chooses him over me consistently. He is an unfair and arbitrary God. He plays favorites. So, how do you dispute that? By evidence. And Christ creates. Lucifer can't create. There's a difference between the two. And then as soon as Christ begins creating, what's Lucifer's next allegation in heaven? Ah, now we have a new ruler over us, one we have to submit to. Uh, Christ now is going to control us. Our freedoms in heaven are taken away. You can't trust this guy with all this power that he's, he's got. And what was the secret between God and the Father? It was the secret of our redemption. That was what the council will. For those of you who value the, some of the writings of one of the founders of our church, everything I'm telling you is not something that I just came up with on my own. Others before me, many other writers and theologians have thought this as well. And you can read this in, the, in a book called Patriarchs and Prophets, the very first chapter. It's very clearly spelled out. You can also read it in the book Desire of Ages, the chapter The Origin of Evil. Those two chapters will spell all of this out. And so we see this this interesting thing. So remember what we are saying about Jesus Christ. He is pre-existent, fully God, non-created being, who presented himself in the form of an angel. And we have gone through multiple Bible texts demonstrating that's the, the, the way he presented himself prior to his incarnation here. All right, let's move on. Can somebody read Sunday's memory text. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. So what do you think it means? Everyone who believes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. What do you think that means? Does Satan believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah? Does Satan believe that? Is he born of God? I'm really thinking, what, what, what does this mean? Can you believe that Jesus actually is the real Messiah, so much so that you want to kill him, so he can't defeat you on earth? Can, can you believe it? That convinced, that's sure, that he is the Messiah. You're You're convinced. But then you go ask, you have to love him. 
Ah, okay. Whoever believes that Jesus is the born of God and everyone that loves him that begat loveth him also that begot him. So it, it, it doesn't say it doesn't say that the, the love is what makes us born of God, does it? I'm just pointing out, the point I'm making here is simply that you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah and not be born of God. Can't you believe that? Yeah. In fact, doesn't the Bible say that there will come a time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess? Is that only the righteous? So will there come a time when all the wicked throughout all of history will acknowledge and believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Will that time come? Will they then be born of God? So there's something else going on here, something else in the text. What might be going on? Love is important. We have to have we have to believe in the Messiah Jesus Christ in such a way that we have that love regenerated in our hearts that we're like him. One of the things I thought of would was that what did Jesus say his mission was? So to believe in Jesus as the Messiah means to believe that the Father is just like Jesus revealed him to be. If you believe the Father is something other than what Jesus revealed him to be, then, then whatever Jesus you're believing in, it's not the one who came. Some other version. Some other false Christ that goes out into the world. And when we believe that God is just like Jesus revealed him to be, because this is something Satan does not believe. Satan believes that God is arbitrary, God is severe, God can't be trusted. He believes Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't believe that Jesus revealed the truth about the Father. He denies it. He refuses to accept it. Oh, if we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, we believe the message he brought us about the Father, and when we really believe that, what happens in us? Are we one to trust with that belief? Does Christ's revelation of his Father win us back to where we can trust him? And if you trust him, what do you do with your heart? Open it or close it? And if you open your heart to God, what does he do to you? He pours his spirit out. Romans 5, he pours his spirit into our heart. He pours his love into our heart. We become partakers of the divine nature. The second covenant, he writes his law in our hearts and minds. We're regenerated. We're transformed. We are born. We are reborn. There we go. All those things. Yeah. All right, let's move on to Monday's lesson. It's a very interesting text. Maybe you've read it before. 1 John 5, 6-8. It says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Therefore, for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Is that clear to everybody? No. Okay, thank you. One honest person in here. Okay. Um, somebody read in Monday's lesson, the paragraph, the third paragraph down, the phrase blood and water. The phrase blood and water is used in John 19.34 in connection with Jesus' death, but does not seem to be the water that John mentions in 1 John 5.6-8. Rather, in the beginning of John's gospel, water is associated with baptism, this seems to be the setting for First John. Jesus came as incarnate Lord and began his public ministry by being baptized with water. He ended his earthly ministry on the cross when he shed his blood. Apparently, water points to Jesus' baptism 
and blood to his death on the cross. Okay, the first word that really struck me in this paragraph was in the last sentence, apparently. How confident do you think they are here? <laughs> so I, I like their, their perspective, but, but we shouldn't take necessarily that this is an absolute because they don't seem to be too confident in their own interpretation here, do they? No. But I, but I don't think they're necessarily wrong either. We have to remember the context. John is dealing with heresies about the nature of Christ. And remember a few weeks ago we talked about some of those heresies, the Gnostic Gospels, the Gnostic heresies. And, and one of the heresies was that Jesus was a human being, not divine, just a, just a human being. It's one of the heresies taught. And that at his baptism, the divine Son of God, the Messiah, entered the body of Jesus and did his three-and-a-half-year ministry and then exited the body of Jesus right before the crucifixion and let the human being Jesus die on the cross. That's one of the Gnostic heresies about Christ that John is dealing with in the first century. Does this particular emphasis, no, he came by water and by blood, deal with that heresy? Yes. It does. Because said, no, he didn't leave, he went through the cross. So, so that heresy is wrong, because he came not just by water, but also by blood. The Messiah went through the cross. Yes? And coincidentally, when uh, Jesus was pierced while he was on the cross, uh, out came water and blood. Yeah, out came water and blood from the heart. Yeah, it did. And, and, and I think that's a, just another pictorial representation in our mind about that. Um, so he's talking about the, the Messiah came by water and blood. It would also deal with that if we looked at that aspect, because then he didn't leave before the cross. He's there on the cross, and there's water and blood on the cross. The Messiah is still here with us, went through the whole process. The other big Gnostic error that was being taught was that Jesus did not come as a human. He only appeared to be like a human, like when he appeared to Abraham in the Old Testament. Christ came and talked to Abraham in the form of a human, but he wasn't yet actually a human. And this is one of the Gnostic heresies that was being taught to him. He was on the earth, but he just looked like a human. He wasn't really human. How does this water and blood deal with that? Potentially. One possible other application. And I'm going to be as certain as the quarterly was. <laughs> Apparently. Okay? Possibly. Yes. When I think of water, I think of childbirth. When she thinks of water, she thinks of childbirth. Right before a birth of a child, what does a woman do? The water breaks, right? Okay. So he came by water. He really became human, guys. He came by. Was there a Bible text that would even give us some insight into that possibility? Well, Jesus himself, this is really fascinating, speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, um, Nicodemus says, How can a man be born uh, when he is old? Okay, Jesus is trying to tell him about rebirth, spiritual renewal. Nicodemus becomes very concrete and says, how can a mother be born out of his mother's womb once he's old? And Jesus says, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again, born from above. How, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born again. So Nicodemus is drawing us clearly to that earthly human birth. Jesus' response. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. What do you think he's describing? Flesh gives birth to flesh? What is that? That's our natural birth, which is water birth. But spirit gives birth to spirit, the renewal of heart. 
And so it's possible, and I'm not going to, again, apparently, possibly, possibly one other thing with the understanding that the heresy that he was dealing with, that Jesus only appeared as a human and was not actually human, that he's saying he did both. He was born a real human being in the water birth, but he also stayed on earth all the way through the cross and shed his blood on the cross. He did both. Both of those Gnostic versions are lies. Potentially. Now I'll leave that if everyone to weigh it and think it through for themselves. What do you all think? Do you have any other options as what this text, the blood and the water, might mean? Yes? Well, in addition, you have God the Father testifying at both points of Christ's life that, this, that he was the Son of God. At baptism, and also at his death. And at his conception and birth. The angel choir sang at his birth, did they not? We have the, uh, the Holy Spirit coming to Joseph and saying, don't be afraid to marry, but what's in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. So we have this testimony of his birth, we have this testimony of his baptism, we have this testimony of the crucifixion. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we should talk about Wednesday's lesson, which is the Trinity. What biblical evidence is there for the Trinity? And we must remember everything we've already read about Christ being God, right? So let's not review the stuff we've already read about Christ being God and all those things we've already read. In the commission given to the disciples, they were to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Father. They were to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the commission given to the apostles. How about this? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Deuteronomy 6.4. Trinity text? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This is fascinating if you know the Hebrew, and we'll go through it really fast. If we were to give you the Hebrew names for God in this text, it would say, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our Elohim, Yahweh is one. Yahweh our Elohim, Yahweh is one. Elohim, what is the significance of that? It's a plural name for God, not a singular name. Elohim is, is a plurality. Instead of saying, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our Elohim, Yahweh is one, it would say, The one is more than one, yet is one. The one is more than one, yet is one. Yes? In uh, Genesis one twenty six, it says, Then God said, Let us make man. And again. It's also in the Hebrew, it's the verb to make, and it has the, um, the, uh, the ending new, which is us. So it's as in plural. So it's another plurality. So in this text, um, we're just reading, The Lord our God is one Lord. Well, the one is more than one, yet is one. In the, in the Hebrew... There are two words for one. Yaqid and Ikad. The first, Yaqid, means singularity, as in one and only, one of a kind, one. Ikad means the one of a unity, a compound unity, the oneness of two or more. We come into one, like the husband and wife shall become one. That's Ikad. The, ver, the, the word in this text, the Lord our God is one Lord, is Ikad, the plurality one. So here we have this text that is often used to say this whole Trinity idea is wrong, and they'll quote it and say, no, there's only one individual God, monotheistic God of one individual. And here, right in it, it really means the, the one is more than one, yet is one. Isn't that fascinating? And then there's two texts out of Isaiah. You hear, See if you hear the Trinity in this. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me with his spirit... This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So the Lord is one member of the Godhead. You pick which member, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has sent me. Who's me? Jesus. So me is Jesus, then who's the Lord? The Father with His Spirit. 
So you have all three. Here's another. That's Isaiah 48, 16, and 17. Isaiah 42, 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Who's speaking in the first person here? Who's the I? God the Father. Who's the servant? Jesus. Jesus. I, here is my servant, I whom I am uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. So here we have again, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Old Testament. Here's one other one, Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, says the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Notice the relationship here. Who's the shepherd? Who's the my? Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow. God the Father. Notice that that's the King James. Here's the NIV. Instead of my fellow, the man who is close to me. The New Century Version. The man who is my friend. And you get this picture of God and Jesus, the Father and the Son. The one who is my, my buddy, my companion. The one who shares time with me. The one who's close to me. The one who I hang out with and enjoy being with. This is the picture that we're being painted here. And, this, and he's pro- prophesying a prophecy about how his fellow, his best friend, his good buddy, his chum, his companion is going to be smitten, and all the sheep will scatter. And then Proverbs, another, another interesting text, Proverbs 8.30. This is Jesus now. Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in the whole world and delighting in mankind. That's Proverbs 8.30 in the NIV. And Jesus, being with the Father as the craftsman, in the good news it says, I was beside him like an architect. In the New American Standard Bible, then I was beside him as a master workman. And do you see this relationship? We're not only buddies and friends, but what are they doing together? They're creating masterful works. Isn't this cool? This picture of God. And so, as I think about all these ideas of the Trinity, what perhaps, which I have not yet said today, is the best argument in favor of a Trinity... A triune God, if you want to use those words, triune, three separate identities in complete unity. What's the best argument for that kind of God, rather than an individuality, singularity? Love. Love. Tell us why. Absolutely. God is love, right? So why? Love is an object that needs to be serving someone else. Beautifully said. Can love exist without an object for that love to pour itself upon? Can love function? Some people are shaking their head yes. The Bible says that God is love. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says love is not self-seeking, it's other-seeking. If there is no other, if there is only one and nothing else, then can it seek another? No, it has to be another for love to seek others, to serve others. Love cannot exist in a singularity. And so this triune identity of God is, is true. God is love. Further evidence, I would suggest to you, is who was man made in the image of? Are we all clear? We were made in, let us make man in our image. And after the creation week, day one, it was good. Day two, it was good. Day three, it was good. Day six, after making man, it was not good. 
<laughs> not good. It was not good that man should be alone. Let us make a helper for him. Because he needed someone to do his laundry and cook his meals. And, and uh, No, that's not right. No. Because whose image again? He was made in the image of God. And God is love. Adam could not experience or enter into God-like love without someone for Adam to serve, without someone for Adam to give himself for, without someone for Adam to pour himself into. Eve was created to be the object of Adam's love, to receive that love, and then it circled back to Adam again. The triune perfection of the Godhead, Adam and Eve, and the Holy Spirit in union, the three shall become one. For that love to exist, there had to be equality between the members loving. He needed someone of his own kind, of his own equality. Adam, in order to experience that love, needed someone of his own nature, his own equality, and that Eve was taken from the side not to be lorded over, nor to be dominating over Adam, but to be one equal partnership where they love each other equally in a perpetual circle of other-centered love. This is another evidence of the triune God that we serve. Beautiful, isn't it? And if you just let your minds explore these things, you're going to find the evidence is all over the place. And the reason we don't see them, and the reason we don't see this evidence is because, well, as soon as Christ fulfilled his mission on the cross, Paul says in Thessalonians that the man of sin would arise, that man of perdition, who sets himself up and imposes himself that everything is God, and sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, what temple was that? Know ye not that ye are a temple of the Holy Spirit and God dwells in you? The reason this has been lost is because the man of sin has risen with all types of false ideas about God that has infected the human mind and the human psyche. Why do you think it was called the Dark Ages? It was dark. It was dark about God. The Bible says in Daniel 8.14, it will be 2300 years until the sanctuary will be cleansed. The sanctuary where the man of sin set himself up. And 2,300 years later, enough truth has been recovered that the truth will set you free, that our minds can be set free from all this falsehood, all this distortion, and we can come back to the true knowledge of God again and experience his presence in our heart to be regenerated, recreated, to look like him, living lives of love again. Thoughts about any of that? Does it make sense? Yes. Thursday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, God has provided a wonderful gift for humanity. This gift is eternal life. However, it is available only in Jesus Christ. How can we receive this gift? By accepting God's testimony about his son, for instance, by believing in and accepting Jesus. What are your thoughts about this idea? What does it mean? Does it mean somebody has to come to a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ in order to have eternal life? No. No. Several no's. Everybody agree? Everybody may be confused. Any questions about that? Any evidence, biblical text that would help us understand? Zechariah 13.6. Zechariah 13.6, what's it say? Some some in heaven will ask Jesus, what are the marks in his hands? Okay, Zechariah 13.6. That's a good one. It says, they will ask me, what are these marks in your hands? And he says, I receive them. These are they that I received at the house of my friends. Why are people in the new heaven and new earth asking Jesus about the marks in his hands? Because they haven't yet heard. Well, we, we, could, we, could, we could say, well, those are the people in the Old Testament times that hadn't yet 
that lived before Christ. Some might argue that. That's, that's talking about those people like, like you know, um, Methuselah and, uh, and Elisha and people like that who didn't uh, live uh, to see the actual fulfillment of what Christ went through. So they didn't realize that he was going to be on a cross, even though they, they knew he was going to sacrifice himself by prophecy. They might argue that's what it's referring to. What would you say? There are those that don't know yet. Romans 2. Okay, there we go. Romans 2.14. Read it for us. Starting in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. What version are you reading? New American Standard. New American Standard. So I'm going to pause for a second just to clarify. You understand he, he, the words just and the word justify in the other verses like NIV, which is the same Greek, reads, it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's, side, in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Same thing, just sometimes we hear it different in English when we hear righteous versus just or justice. Okay, go on. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts ultimately accusing or else defending them. On the day, when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. In the NIV it says, since they will be shown that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. What does that sound like? No. What's the... What's the this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Hebrews chapter 8 and 10. I will write my law on your hearts and minds. The new covenant is having the law written on the heart and mind. Paul is saying these people who haven't even heard the law, the law is the Torah, the scriptures, they haven't heard it. But they have the law written on their hearts. People say, when saw we hungry? And they'll say, you know, you fed me, you... Yes, he said, when did we ever serve you? When you fed the hungry. In other words, when we love others more than ourselves. The great law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And your neighbor as yourself. And so, the teaching of scripture. God has two great books. It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. That God's divine nature and eternal power are seen through what he has made. So that men are without excuse. And those who have never had the written word presented to them. But whose hearts are sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Will see the nature of love. And the principles of goodness and kindness. And they will reject the principles of selfishness. And exploitation of others. And they will give of themselves to help others. And sacrifice themselves in love for other people. Those people have the law of love written on their hearts. Even though they have not yet heard the good news about Jesus Christ. And that still only comes through Jesus. Us because he's the method of salvation. Because he's number one, the creator of nature, <laughs> right? So if they learn about God in nature, it's through Jesus' work that they learn about it. And two, when they trust the God that they don't even know, the unknown God, as Paul talked about to the Athenians, it's the Holy Spirit still bringing to their hearts what Jesus has accomplished for them, even though they didn't understand it. Yes. It's proof that hearing is different than experiencing. Like, I can treat somebody, I can tell you something, but unless you experience it, it's two different things. And I think that's another way of saying, is that... Oh, I like that, yeah. Hearing is definitely differencing than experiencing, isn't it? Because yeah. we have it all in our hearts. Yeah. But unless we experience it, it doesn't mean anything. Ah, I like it, I like it. 
We have to experience. Yes. Is there any people group on this earth that this text does not apply to? Any? No, I don't think so. No, I think the text applies to all people groups. The Holy Spirit is working and striving to all people groups. And nature is available to all people to see. Romans chapter 1. And the Romans chapter 2 text is a, is a continuation or expansion of his thoughts from Romans chapter 1. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are such an incredible and infinite God. That you, when man fell into sin, did not leave us in darkness, but Jesus, the light that lightens all men, came and became one with us, taking upon himself our, our terminal condition in order to overcome, heal, and restore us back to unity and oneness with you. We open our hearts now and ask that your spirit will come and take all that Christ has achieved and write that law of love in our hearts and minds that we can live lives of, of free from fear, free from insecurity, free from doubt, lives of love as the perfect love of God will cast out all our fear and we can go out and represent you in this world, bringing others to a knowledge of you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.